0: The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News.
1: Welcome to The Views Room, a weekly conversation among Breaking Views columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm Anthony Curry and I'm here with my colleague Jennifer
2: Saber. Hi, Jen. Hello, Anthony. So this week, we're going to tackle Donald Trump's latest tax plans, and also we're going to take a look at Yahoo and what's possibly its best deal yet.
1: But first, we're going to wend our way back across the pond yet again to chat with Peter Talalastin in London. Hi, Peter. Thanks for joining us again. Hi, guys. So uh, let's pick up where we left off last week. You're in Davos, uh, freezing your toes off. Now you're back in London. I'm sure the weather there is just delightful. You, you read a sort of coda to your time in Davos there where you looked at the ideas that were Probably pretty terrible. The, the, the dullard, the dunce ideas of, of the few days at the World Economic Forum. I, I think we went through one or two of them last week, especially that China would become the de facto leader of globalization. But why don't you sort of tell us about a couple of the other ones that you thought uh, were uh, particularly worthy of uh, being stripped down?
3: Just to set the context a bit, I mean, what we tried to do was basically look at kind of what the, the emerging consensus is. I mean, what you get often in Davos everybody flies in, they spend four or five days um, in this giant echo chamber in the mountains and sort of emerge with a, with a kind of a common point of view often about things. And experience has taught us that that Davos consensus is often wrong. So what we've sort of thought we would do is try and look at some of the strongest aspects of the Davos consensus and maybe think about how, ways in which they might be wrong. And I would say the one clear con- bit of consensus that came out, particularly from the US delegates there, was a sense of great optimism and positivity really, about the Trump administration. A lot of people there who work in finance had a feeling that you know there were going to be tax cuts, there's going to be infrastructure spending, regulation is going to be rolled back, and that this is generally going to be good for them and good for the U.S. economy. Um, and there was a real feeling that pe- people were focusing on that and less on threats of protectionism, uh, Trump's temperament, uh, conflicts of interest, other negative aspects you might you might want to focus on with the administration. They were incredibly positive, and I think when the when the consensus is that strong, you often think, mm, I wonder how long this is going to last, and whether this will look so good in a year's time.
1: Why so negative Peter surely these guys know what they're talking about what have they possibly got wrong in the past well uh, quite a lot actually i mean i don't think anybody
3: left davos a year ago thinking that, that anyone other than hillary clinton was was going to be the us president or expecting that the british public would vote to leave the european union so that was a, a pretty big you know that was a pretty big miss for the davos crowd last year and um, really it was quite striking how little sort of humility there was about that in, in the crowd this year. I mean, there was a sense that they got that one wrong, but uh, but life moved on, and um, there was no real need for, for the sort of the global 1% to really um, think about things differently or, or hear different voices. And if you go further back, I mean, you know, you go back to the beginning of 2007, nobody would have said, oh, there's a financial crisis, which is about to happen, and the financial crisis, as we know, started several months later. Even the beginning of 2008, once the crisis was underway, there was this idea that emerging markets had decoupled from developed markets and could carry on growing regardless of what was happening in the West. That, again, was proven wrong within a few months. So there is a fairly strong history here of this consensus being proved wrong within the year.
1: So really a question of, you know, listen to what they say and and see if you can bet the opposite way.
2: Yeah. So, Peter, uh, in your experience, have they gotten anything right, the consensus?
1: <laughs> um,
3: I think it's uh, yeah. No, I mean, I'm not saying they get everything wrong, um, but I, I think I think what's interesting is to sort of is particularly when you get such strong agreement on things amongst these people that that sometimes you sort of you start looking for kind of ways in which they might be mistaken. And so, for example, you know, one thing that was a very there was a very strong view amongst the people in finance, again, particularly from the U.S., but not um, not only in the U.S., that you know regulations were going to be rolled back, financial regulations were going to be rolled back. And again, I think. It takes a bit of a leap to think that you know, politicians in the UK and the US and elsewhere are going to respond to this populist backlash by saying, well, the first thing we need to do is make sure that you know, bankers are less constrained. So again, I, I, mean, I think it's probably quite likely that there's a moratorium on new regulations, that that s- cycle has, has sort of topped out. But the idea that they're going to start burning up the regulations that they've spent the past 10 years imposing again, I think, looks a stretch.
1: Yes, certainly from the Trump administration's point of view, it hasn't been top of the agenda. So far, he's signed a couple of executive orders to make regulations for getting new factories sorted out and whatever uh, easier. But no, you're right. I mean, financial regulation may well be there down the road. There's one more I want to look at before we move on to the next segment, and that's artificial intelligence, which is been getting a lot of play over the last few months. Um, I saw a great deal of it at the Detroit Auto Show, where people are talking about driverless cars a lot more than they were in the past. The consensus, you seem to say, Peter, was that this is going to put everyone out of work.
3: Yeah, there's a lot of there's um, a lot of sort of uh, looking into the future in Davos about artificial intelligence and the, the rise of robots, uh, both in terms of sort of what is technologically possible, but also in terms of sort of the broader consequences of that, the social consequences, uh, what it means to live in a world. That that is kind of you know where robots are more ubiquitous. Um, what we do about the people whose jobs are displaced and so forth. Um, and these are these are valid topics, and it's you know it's, it's it's important to um to discuss them. I wouldn't say that anybody had any particularly bright answers. There certainly wasn't any sense amongst the people who were investing in these companies that they would be somehow responsible for the people whose jobs were displaced by the automation. But um, I think I think what's striking really is that. This this is kind of a a, a perennial for Davos. I mean, this 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 topic has been around for a few years now, and actually, I mean, it just uh, what struck me was the, the contrast between. All this talk about automation and the fact that you 've got three thousand people who've flown to the Swiss mountains in order to discuss these things face to face because you know they can 't do so with technology so it kind of, there 's a real sense that you know um, whatever you might whatever improvements might be made in terms of communications in terms of in terms of automated decision making you can 't displaced the sort of the human desire for wanting to be in the same room, to sort of talk to each other face to face, to network, to socialise, and all those kinds of things. And so that was quite a big contrast with all the, with all the discussion about robots.
1: Okay, well, Peter, thanks for talking us through Davos. I want you to stick with us though and just give us a, a brief update on the latest from the wonderful world of Brexit. There's been a, a little bit of news. Obviously, Theresa May spoke at the World Economic Forum last week, the British Prime Minister, uh, but also there was a Supreme Court hearing that went against her government this week. Just talk us through what happened and, and, and why it may not be as important as those who wish to remain in the EU would think.
3: Yeah, so the, the, the Supreme Court ruling has been, um, uh, this was a, a sort of an appeal of a previous ruling uh, that came out at the end of last year. This is a case brought by a number of people, including a, a prominent British businesswoman, basically arguing that, uh, making the argument that Parliament, should have the final say in taking Britain out of the European Union. And the real issue under discussion here was was whether or not Parliament should have a say before the government triggers the process of leaving, which is Article 50, which is the sort of the the official starting gun for for any process of leaving the EU. And that then starts a two-year clock ticking, during which then the arrangements are made. And um, Theresa May's government had argued very strongly that this was something that the government could do without seeking parliamentary approval. The opponents of it had argued that Parliamentary approval was needed, and, and the Supreme Court eventually sided with the people who said the Parliament was, was, was needed to make that decision. And this was sort of presented as a victory for, you know, the kind of the, the pro-EU people and, and, a, and a defeat for the government. But in, in reality, it doesn't make that much difference because it is kind of hard to imagine that the members of Parliament of Britain would vote against triggering Article 50 when that is pretty clearly what the referendum result suggested that people, the majority of people wanted. So I think it may slow things down a little bit, um, there now has to be a bill that goes through Parliament. There'll be some discussion over that. It may get held up a bit. It also has to go through the House of Lords, where again, potentially there's a, there's, there's a bit of a hold up. But it's kind of hard to imagine, given the referendum result, even though it was a close result, given that result, it's hard to imagine that a majority of, of the members of Parliament or the members of the House of Lords would uh, would seek to frustrate it at this point.
1: Well, why, why is that then? I mean, I, I get what you're saying about you know, why, why go against public opinion. But the Parliament does have the right to do that. And I think the vast majority of MPs declared themselves to be in favour of staying in the European Union. So what indication has there been that they wouldn't follow through on their own conscience, as it were, rather than uh, going with the slim majority that the vote got last year?
3: Well, I think there is a, um, uh, I mean, there's a couple of things going on. I mean, first of all, there's a sort of, there's a sort of level of just political pragmatism. I mean, actually, if you look at the way in which the vote breaks down, that the referendum vote broke down, uh, sort of across the country, the majority of MPs have constituencies where there was a majority of people who voted for Brexit. So it's hard for them to make the case that they should ignore the way in which their constituents voted, and that they should uh, that they should oppose the government on this. And there may be some MPs who say, "Look, my constituency." was in favour of remaining, and there, and I'm in favour of remaining, therefore I'm going to vote to remain. But I don't see how that could ever be a majority who would, who would come to that conclusion. The other thing that's going on is that, I mean, there is a, there is a much clearer sense now of what's going to happen. So Theresa May, uh, she made a couple of speeches last week, one in Davos, but a couple of days before that she made a more substantial speech where she basically set out her sort of view of what, she, what the government would like to happen as part of Brexit, which is something that people have been calling for for months, and, and the government has been sort of resisting offering any detail. So she offered some detail in terms of what the priorities were, in terms of leaving the single market, uh, this whole idea, which people are quite sceptical about, about sort of a global free-trading Britain. But it, so I think the other thing is that, it, you, you know, previously when you were triggering Article 50, the, the question was, well, you're triggering Article 50, but what's the outcome going to be, or what kind of outcome do you want? Nobody really knows. At this point now, at least people can say whether they agree with it or not, they at least know what the government of the day is trying to achieve by leaving the EU. And so that, I think, again, makes it, makes it harder for people to try and hold up this process any longer.
1: OK, Peter, thanks very much for talking us through both Brexit and uh, your final thoughts on Davos. Great to have you on the show again. Speak to you again soon. Thank you. Let's stick with the business of politics for our next segment. We turn to Gina Chon in our Washington, D.C. office. Welcome back, Gina. How are you doing?
0: Good. Thanks, guys.
1: So, Gina, you've taken on the task for us of, of trying to explain just what exactly President Donald Trump's trade, tariff and tax plans are all about, lumping them all together. Obviously, this has been one of the biggest controversies uh, of versus campaign and now uh, his administration. He was talking for a long time about imposing a border tax, a 35 percent tax on companies importing goods into the U.S. that were made abroad where they could be making them here. He's been going after car companies, airline companies. He's been going after a whole gamut of companies to try and get them to, well, basically just do as they're told. The Congress has a slightly different plan of what he wants to do to try and increase uh, business here in the US and manufacturing in the US. Why don't you tell us what you, just what is the point of what they're trying to achieve here before we get into the details?
0: Yeah, so uh, it's been a bit confusing I think for people because both Trump's plan and the House Republican plan both have the word border and tax in it so it's um, been a a bit of a struggle I think for some people to get their heads around including the the companies that this uh, tax could apply to so basically with uh, Trump's plan as you said it's actually pretty simple and straightforward he basically just wants to punish companies that move manufacturing or production abroad broad costing uh, American jobs, supposedly, and possibly also even to uh, companies that have already done so. It's a simple tax, it would be applied at the border. And as you said, it would be as high as 35%. Um, The congressional plan is a bit more complicated and is actually part of their overall corporate tax overhaul. Um, So they're Tax, which they call border adjustment tax, would actually be incorporated into that. So, in addition to cutting The corporate tax rate from 35 percent as a headline rate to 20 percent they would no longer allow companies to deduct the costs of imports from their tax calculation so that basically means that companies that uh, rely on imports more whether it's for parts or for sale would take a bigger hit while companies that export would actually have those products exempted from their tax calculation? Okay,
2: so Gina, let me just see if I understand this correctly. Right now, if if I'm a car manufacturer and I'm I have one of my factories in say Mexico, right now, am I taxed if some of those parts come back into the United States to be reassembled? You know, fully to have the whole car put together? Is that what you're talking about? The tax deduction?
0: Yeah. So it's for both parts and for anything that's even for sale. So if you import hats from China or Vietnam, as I think uh, Trump has actually done, um, including for the inaugural ceremony, the cost of of that is, is also deductible. So it's not just uh, for the supply chain.
1: And this gets pretty complex. I think uh, Trump even himself has said he prefers his plan because it's more simple, which I suppose wouldn't surprise that many people. But I, there are huge connotations to this, huge consequences from Trying to change part or all of a tax code on on imports. I mean, like jen was saying, if you're a car company, you now you rely on. Well, I mean, it depends. It actually, depends a great deal. of the car company where you get your parts from. I mean, some part, car, cars are designated as being 60% US or 70% US by by the, the the regulator here. And sometimes that can involve stuff you get from NAFTA. I mean, it's. It's just a mess, isn't it? I mean, for companies to understand how this impacts them must be a real minefield.
0: No, and and that's part of the argument for some of the opponents, is that they're going to have to completely recalculate their um, strategies based on sort of the pluses and minuses of this, as you say. If they do rely on a lot of imports or or sell imported products, they'll have to figure out now what the cost would be since they won't be able to deduct that anymore. But then on the other hand, exports will be exempt. So then the benefits of that and which outweighs the other. Um, There are other industries uh, like retail, you know, people companies that sell clothes and shoes electronics that really do mainly rely on uh, imported products uh, to um, sell the customers here they are saying they'll just take a, a bigger cost overall, and they'll frankly uh, pass it on to consumers. The National Retail Federation says they'll have to increase prices by up to fifteen percent. Um, obviously, that's you know a, something that you would expect them to say, but uh, it does have some um, realism behind it.
1: And Are they in that fifteen percent number? Do you know whether they're factoring in the benefit of a corporate tax cut? Because you know, if if the whole point of this is is as part of an overall plan, then you know in the wonderful world of of make believe that I seem to inhabit sometimes, I would like to think that the entire benefit and cost gets passed on in one in one go. so if I'm a consumer, I want the benefit of that of that corporate tax cut as well as having to pay uh, the increase in, in imports.
0: Yeah, well, their argument is that uh, the the costs now of not being allowed to deduct import would actually outweigh any benefits of a overall rate cut. Some of the proponents of the plan say actually there would also be a rise in the dollar because theoretically there would be less demand for imports, so that would actually offset um, any costs uh, borne by this new border adjustment tax. Those are that's
1: pretty. That's pretty <laughs> simplistic, though, isn't it? I mean, that's that's cherry picking what you think drives the foreign exchange market.
0: No, exactly, and it's obviously the, that's a big if because, the, as you say, there are a lot of influences, and you know, even if it does um, drive up the dollar, I mean, who knows how long that could take. And obviously, that's uh, not something that critics of this proposal are really buying.
1: No, I think it's, it's worth just uh, reminding ourselves that back uh, soon after Brexit, that uh, one wag at HSBC did uh, say, what was it? He said something along the lines of, you know, the, the pound sterling has now become the effective um, opposition to the government. You now, you've got to be careful what policies you come up with and hoping that the foreign exchange rate goes your way because it can very often come back to bite you right where you don't want it to.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, The other thing that is in the favor of lawmakers who are proposing this is that it has the added benefit, um, which Trump's plan doesn't have, of adding about a trillion dollars to federal revenue over a decade, which would help to offset any losses in revenue by the corporate tax rate cut. And so it's a way of sort of balancing things out a bit, which uh, which Trump is sort of less concerned about.
1: I suppose he's think Trump's general idea is if we uh, bring more jobs back to the U.S., we'll create demand and that will increase taxes anyway, even if, unfortunately, prices go up at the same time.
0: Yeah, it's all both both are, have a lot of assumptions built in.
1: Now, what about the, the politics of this? This could be an interesting uh, example of how the executive and legislature, both run by Republicans or nominally run by Republicans, deal with each other. We've already seen Trump come up with a couple of statements against Congress on relatively minor things, I suppose, on a, from a policy perspective. But what's Trump going to do if Congress really pushes its own plan? Is he going uh, to get in line or is Congress going to get in line with him or, or what happens?
0: Well, they're um, trying to figure out a way to negotiate this. This is their top priority, uh, both from the administration and from uh, Republicans in Congress. They're actually um, starting their uh, retreat, and Trump's going to be meeting with um, congressional leaders. I think part of it is, uh, frankly, just the marketing, which, obviously, Trump cares a lot about. Part of his problem with the border adjustment tax is just the name. It just sounds complicated. doesn't sound sexy. It's hard to explain to people, as you said. So the Republican leaders in Congress are sort of pitching it as ending the, quote, made in America tax on exports and really encouraging uh, manufacturing at home. So that's maybe a way to sell it. But again, the mechanics are a bit complicated and that might be harder to use to win Trump over.
2: So, Gina, one thing that I don't quite understand about this is if one of these tax plans pass, or passes. Um, what does that mean? I mean? What's to stop another country from slapping higher taxes on American goods?
0: Well, nothing really. I mean, they yeah. sort of have to do their own. Um gaming of the, the benefits and the detriments to getting into perhaps a bit of a trade war. I mean, Trump's plan does have more of a chance of, of doing that because it is seen as sort of a punitive measure. The uh, border adjustment tax that's part of the uh, congressional plan is kind of similar to a value added tax that a lot of countries have, and in those instances, they have a similar setup where um, imports are, are The tax applies to the imports, but not exports. And that's kind of another way that uh, Republicans in Congress are pitching it. Um, Obviously, that's more akin to sales tax. This one is uh, a a bit different because it does apply in terms of corporate income. So that's another reason that um, companies here are are opposing it.
1: all right. Well, Gina, um, it's a fascinating and very complicated topic. And I think you, you have managed to enlighten the both of us and hopefully our listeners too. So thanks for that. And we hope to have you back on the show very soon.
0: Great. Thanks, guys.
2: One company that can benefit from a corporate tax cut is Yahoo. Chief Executive Marissa Mayer could certainly use a lucky break. We have Richard Beals here our U.S. editor based in New York, to discuss the latest with Yahoo. Richard, there's a lot of moving pieces going on with the company right now. So first of all, what has to happen is Yahoo has to get through its... $4.8 4.8 billion dollar sale of its search and advertising businesses to Verizon. Which is
4: no certainty.
2: Which is no certainty. <laughs> they they came out uh, earlier this week saying that the deal is gonna be uh, pushed back and it's not gonna they don't expect it to close until the second quarter. Yeah, Verizon, they were
4: expecting the first quarter, right? right? This is
1: this is because of all the hacking, right?
2: All the hacking. Well,
4: you know, delays can happen for a number of reasons, but certainly Verizon executives have been on the record and off the record, basically saying, you know, we're not even sure. Some of them have said, we're not even sure we want to do this now after these hacking revelations. You know, billion, a billion plus people's accounts were hacked, account information. And, um, you know, on the record, they, they've talked about maybe a price cut in the deal. So there's, there's a lot of moving parts in that deal alone.
2: Right. And Verizon yesterday said, we're still not sure what's happening here with Yahoo. So... Let's just assume for a second that that deal actually closes. So that happens, then the rump of the company is basically the Asian assets. We have Alibaba, uh, their equity stakes in Alibaba, and in Yahoo Japan, and they have, you know, rechristened it Altaba.
4: Well, they're, yeah, they're <laughs> going to call it Altaba, um, <laughs> right. alternative Alibaba. Who knows where that where that came from?
2: So <laughs> what you did was. You decided to take a look at this because this has been a huge issue with Yahoo for several years now. One of the reasons why they couldn't spin it out was because of the um, high corporate tax rate that Yahoo was going to be on the hook for.
4: Right. I mean, this is a great problem to have, right? I mean, we all complain about paying taxes, but you pay taxes because you made some money. And these investments, a huge one in Alibaba and another one in Yahoo Japan, are worth combined between forty-five and fifty billion dollars, and they've been, and the basis is like a few billion. I mean, it was a fantastic investment uh, way back when, but now you know, investors in Yahoo kind of think of those as that's money good, but in fact, you, nobody can sell them uh, without incurring a tax bill. Um, now, for an individual, that would be capital gains for yahoo it 's a company, and it said this will continue to be the case when it with Arbor, once it 's got rid of its core business it 'll be taxed like a company, so it 's a corporate tax rate now,
1: so that would be what thirty five percent at the moment so or? at
4: the moment that would the assumption is thirty five percent exactly how this plays out for these particular assets of this particular company. You never quite know what the number's going to be, but we 've always assumed thirty plus percent when we 've looked or had to look at the value of Yahoo. If you back out now, you know we we used to try to do this to figure out the value of the core assets. Now we have a price on the core assets, so we can back those out, and we can say, well, the at the moment investors seem to be implying a thirty-three percent hit on the value of those assets because they're worth thirty-three um, percent less than than their market value, their market shares. So we know we know how much they're worth. Um, so what's interesting here is Donald Trump has said he wants to cut the corporate tax rate to fifteen percent. Republicans in Congress have a plan out from last year, which talks about 20%. Uh, if that's going to be the tax hit, and Yahoo could just sell those shares, be taxed at only 15% rather than 30 plus, it's a huge windfall, actually, and a kind of huge lucky break for having delayed so long dealing with this problem.
2: You know, you're, you took a look at this, and you were looking at different tax rates, and um you know, what what do you think the probability, I mean, (laughs) given all the drama around Yahoo is, like, do you think that this could happen anytime soon or do you think these things are just going to kind of sit there until, you know, something passes or, you know, even if if the Yahoo deal doesn't get done?
4: Yeah, I mean, if the tax rate drops, then it seems like it's a moment for Yahoo to say, right, let's just see if we can sell these shares.
2: Right, so even if the tax rate drops and they still haven't sold their core assets. That could, right. that could still be, sell the they shares. They could still sell the yeah. shares, right? So yeah. that could be her lucky break there for sure. It could
4: be a lucky break. And you know, we the the way the way we run, run the numbers, we figured that, you know, these shares the shares are worth forty five billion dollar plus these two stakes in Alibaba and uh, Yahoo, Japan, investors are kind of only allocating thirty ish billion to that. Uh if the tax rate was cut in half from thirty plus to fifteen there's an $8 billion possible uplift. That's about a 20% uplift possible for Yahoo shares. Now there are lots of, you know, I don't think investor expectations of things going smoothly with Yahoo are very, are very high anymore. It's, <laughs> it's been going around, around and around. So nobody seems to be factoring that in right now. And the discount that seems to be implied is probably where it has been for quite some time. So it's not like people are suddenly saying, okay, there's a they're not sort of saying there's even a 50% chance of this tax break happening and we're going to put that in our models and work that out. That Even that w- should have made Yahoo's shares go higher than they have. So, yeah, so the but, shares
2: have basically been kind of sitting yeah, where they've been sitting of, for if, a
4: while. You kind know, of. Once you adjust for where Alibaba's value has been, they've been kind of static.
1: That's got to be a vote against Yahoo and, and its leadership and the former Marissa Mayer and the board, right? Because so many other companies or analysts and investors in so many other companies have looked at this potential tax cut, even if they're just you know handicapping it to twenty percent or even twenty five percent and saying we think it'll probably happen in the first year of, of the new congress new administration
4: but I think you have to you have to you know you if you're an investor in Yahoo you've seen Marissa Meyer come in, you've seen promises of turning the core business around you've seen they wanted to spin off the Asian assets in a separate vehicle which would still be taxable it wouldn't spin the assets off sort of free and clear. Then they decided, no, we're not going to do that because we can't get a ruling from the IRS in the U.S. So we'll think about spinning off the core business and leaving assets behind, the Asian assets behind instead. And then it's taking, then they had this, you know, having just said in their sale agreement to Verizon, no, we haven't had any hacks. Basically, it was one of the things, representations they notionally made when they signed that deal. Suddenly, they reveal in the following weeks and months, two huge ones dating from a few years back. So if you're an investor in Yahoo, I, I just think, you know, adding to the uncertainty of a if and when and what level any Trump or Republican congressional tax cut comes, I, I'm not sure it makes much sense to factor it in at this point. It's kind of, it's a nice to have, but you'd be so jaded by now. And there's so many uncertainties and timing and so on that I think Maybe it's not unreasonable that people haven't done that yet, but it is a source of potential upside that may, that may not be fully sort of recognized, I think.
1: That's a pretty sad indictment. If you're sitting as Marissa Mayer, you're basically being told by investors, we expect you to snatch defeat from the jaws of, of what ought to be a really easy
4: tax victory. Now, sadly, that's, that seems to be about where we are.
2: <laughs> All right. Well, Richard, thank you very much for joining us this week.
1: Sure. OK, that's our show. I'd like to thank my co-host, Jen Saber, as well as our guests, Peter Tal Larson, Gina Chon and Richard Beals. This week's episode was produced by Bethel Habti and Andrew D'Antonio. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Please subscribe to the Views Room on iTunes or SoundCloud and do share your opinions about our show. You know we'd love to hear from you. And of course, please do tune in next week for another edition of the show. Thanks for joining us.